Hello and welcome to Socialism, the Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. How do socialists approach trade unionism? The PCS union organises workers in the civil service and those who work in national government on privatised contracts. It is currently holding the elections to its national executive. Socialist Party members who work in this sector are standing on a slate alongside others in the broad left network. The trade unions are the main mass organisations of the working class and have enormous potential power to fight back against the attacks by the bosses and the politicians who represent them. But the leadership is a crucial factor in the union's ability to play their potential role in fighting cuts and the attacks on the working class. PCS has played a very important role as a left-led union But under the pressure, first of Corbynism and then of the pandemic and the lockdown and the false idea of national unity, the leadership's confidence in the members and in the working class to fight back has weakened. This is reflected in the approach of the leadership on all the issues, from pay to fighting oppression to political strategy. This included, for example, parking the union's pay claim at the start of the pandemic lockdown. So the building of broad lefts in the union is vital in fighting for a socialist approach, a fighting approach. This episode of Socialism looks at the elections in the PCS and the issues at stake for the members and the wider working class. Earlier this week, we've heard US President Joe Biden say something quite unusual for a US president. He commented on the importance of the trade unions. Now, for socialists, this is obviously a no-brainer. But unlike Biden, we organise to build them as mass fighting organisations of the working class. And for today's podcast, I'm here with Marion Lloyd. Marion is standing as the broad left network candidate for president of the PCS. PCS is the union for civil service workers and for national government workers on privatised contracts. And I'm going to discuss with Marion her socialist programme for the elections. Hello, Marion. Hi, Sarah. So should we get stuck in straight away because I've got quite a few questions for you today, starting with a bit of an historic one, if that's okay. Ten years ago, in 2011, PCS was at the front of fighting austerity, leading the calls for coordinated action against the Tory, Lib Dem, Condem government's austerity programme. The high points of that year were the 26th of March National Trade Union demonstration, which saw three quarters of a million trade unionists marching through London against the Tory austerity. And then later, in November, two million workers out on strike in basically what was a public sector general strike. What's changed since then? Why is it necessary for there to be a challenge now to the PCS leadership to fight to transform the union? Well, for anybody that was around in 2011, the demonstrations and the action on the streets during that day was incredible. In my whole of my trade union working life, I've never been involved in, apart from the poll tax and the miners' strike and whopping, I think this was probably one of the most significant moments in certainly my history as an activist, when it was clear that hundreds and hundreds of thousands of ordinary working people struck together no matter which union they were in, on the question of pay, pensions, and the massive, massive attacks that were taking place at that point against ordinary workers, whether it be in the workplace or in our local communities. And for me, it showed the absolute huge potential 
of the power of workers when they have or could have an effective leadership that actually takes them into action to fight for what I believe is rightfully ours. And as I say, for me, it was a demonstration of what could be done if we had the right leadership. Unfortunately, after that, that huge, massive day of action whimpered into almost nothing. And PCS, my union, was left practically on its own, trying to continue that struggle to fight for workers. And I think for me, in terms of our own union and the leadership in our union, then that was a turning point in many ways. Because I think as a result of that, with the exception of comrades now who are in the broad left network, or, you know, interested in the sorts of programmes that we stand for, I think they lost an incredible amount of confidence in workers, unfortunately, rather than in their leaders. So for me, we've had a 10 years of very little struggle in our union, despite the incredible level of attacks on jobs, office closures, service to the public, all the things that we've had to deliver during COVID, for example, has really sort of exposed what isn't there anymore. In my view, the union leadership has failed to respond to that in what I would call a collective manner by mobilising the membership. And for me, that's what's changed. The attacks are no less now than they were 10 years ago. In fact, I think they're worse. But unfortunately, we have a leadership who have demonstrated, particularly during the COVID crisis, that they're not prepared to build that momentum in the workplaces, to struggle and to link up with obviously other workers across the piece as well. So for me, what hasn't changed is the level, depth, breadth of the attacks against workers. And I believe that that will get worse over the next period. But what has changed is that the current leadership does not seem prepared to build the confidence and consciousness of our members, recruiting non-members, building links at grassroots level with other unions so that we can have not just a repeat of 2011, but actually build another 2011 to make sure that we win on behalf of workers more generally. And so for me, what has graphically changed is the preparedness of our leadership. And that's why we're standing. Great. Thanks, Marion. And I guess that's linked then to the question of building the broad left network about working with others in the union around that programme. Is that the case? Absolutely. I mean, I'm a member of the Socialist Party. I was in the militant. That's no secret, I think, to anybody who is aware of me inside the union. But throughout my whole history, I've always wanted to build links with people of like-minded attitudes. That doesn't mean that we have to all think the same. We don't. We have different ideas, different views. But what is absolutely common between the people that are currently come with us as part of the Broad Left Network and the people that are joining or getting more involved is that we believe fundamentally that the power in the union is absolute and there is a level of frustration that that's not being exercised and not being built, not being tested. And for that reason, we've come together as a block. There are a few hundred of us now, which started from absolutely nothing. But it is very much about how we can rebuild a democratic fighting union Dealing with issues, obviously, that affect members in the workplace, which has been graphically illustrated by what we've achieved during the COVID crisis, mainly by local reps fighting in the workplaces or in branches or in groups. 
but making that much broader, building campaigns on pay and conditions, preserving office space, making sure that things like the introduction of more homeworking is used to the benefit of our members, not an excuse to close offices and save thousands of pounds by the employer. There's a massive agenda that's already started during COVID and the importance of working together with like-minded people is that you organise. And so your starting point almost is to organise within that organisation, agree the policies and then take that out amongst the mass of the activist layer and the members to build support for that programme. Or, of course, you know, we operate on the basis of inclusive discussion and debate. And that makes us even better, doesn't it? Because you take into account everybody's ideas and everybody's suggestions so that you can really go into the depths and the root of the membership to take them with us. Brilliant. And you touched there on the COVID pandemic and its impact on workers. And obviously, we've seen workers having to fight really tenaciously for their safety in the workplaces. But unfortunately, as you touched on earlier, as been the case over the last period, the trade unions, especially in the last year, have been found wanting, haven't they? Really capitulating to this false idea of national unity. Has that been the case in PCS as well? I mean, I think the first thing to say is that, you know, if I'm very fair about it, and I always try and be, you know, no one has had to deal with an issue like this in our generation or the generations that come after me. This is new to everybody. But what I would say is my view is that the ABCs of trade unions exist no matter what the issue is. My sense is that quite early on, it was very clear that we were in a very dangerous situation. And of course, I think the whole of the union, the current leadership as well, were really struggling to work through how we deal with, you know, the fact that we've got the vast majority of our members are in the workplace, got people out in the field. We've got people, you know, delivering key services. We're responsible for the vaccine task force. We're responsible for SAGE. We're responsible for Brexit. We're responsible for testing of NHS equipment, a whole raft of things that the general public would have no idea that national government workers, including civil servants, you know, are responsible for delivering benefits, furlough scheme. We had to develop policy very quickly, blah, blah, blah. So the challenges facing the membership at the same time as having to deal with the pandemic themselves and their families was absolutely massive because obviously, well, perhaps it's not so obvious, but the vast majority of us join the civil service or the government sector because we're committed to public service. It doesn't always mean that we like what we're delivering or having to do. But in this case, although for a number of the schemes the government introduced, we would want to go a lot, lot further, the fact of the matter is that members wanted to deliver as best they could, particularly, you know, in terms of making sure that people got their benefits payments on time, that people who were being laid off got the relevant money on time, you know, because as I say, the challenges were huge and probably double what we normally have to deal with. The union, in my view, the union leadership currently, I think, was weak in its response within weeks of understanding that the pandemic was very serious. They watered down, in my opinion, our demands on pay basically going to the government and saying, we won't bother with our 10% anymore. If you give everybody a a rate of inflation increase, then we'll live with it. And although I can understand that sentiment, and I think members could, the fact of the matter is that what that did mistakenly 
was signal to the government that PCS was not going to have a fight. And that has unfortunately been the mantra of the current leadership all the way through the COVID crisis. It's been very much if you've got a health and safety issue, then you're on your own. If you want to take collective action or you want to take individual action, we'll support you. But implicit in that statement is the point that they are therefore not going to lead. And I think that's a massive mistake because although most members' eyes are on COVID and office safety, the fact of the matter is that the cuts haven't stopped, the closures haven't stopped, the no pay rises hasn't stopped. We've seen the announcements about the alleged pay pause, better known as a pay freeze, already this year. The movement of jobs out of London haven't stopped. The stress levels haven't stopped. In fact, they've probably gone up during this period. Mental health and well-being hasn't stopped. They've gone up. The equality issues, you know, the disproportionate effects on black members, on women, on disabled members, haven't stopped. And I believe that the union's been severely wanting. We have put alternatives to that, i.e. that we should be developing a set of demands to the employer and that we should then be building and campaigning for a statutory ballot, just in case that we needed to use it. Because we've now got a six-month turnaround for statutory ballots, so you need to be prepared. And the union should have led by that example. And I believe that if we'd have done that, then we wouldn't have some of the issues that we've got today, including what's happening at DVLA in Swansea, the fact that the job centre workers are being forced back into the office when it is absolutely clear they can deliver from the workplace. People have been forced into the courts and so on and so forth. That's not to say that local reps have done a fantastic job in keeping a lot of our offices shut and members safely at home. But I do think that if the National Union had organised a collective response on COVID with a series of demands, then not only would we not have job centre workers being forced back into the workplace on Monday, I think it would have put us in a really good position to build on that to tackle the attacks that we know are going to come on jobs paying conditions. Okay, so moving on, you mentioned workers going back into the workplace next week, but without, you know, absolute confidence in the safety of those workplaces. Do you think unions can play a role in workplace safety? Absolutely. And PCS reps have shown that we do and we have. We have a fairly well-developed health and safety network, but beyond that, you know, a lot of the health and safety work is integrated into the bargaining work that we do, whether that's at group local level or bargaining unit level. And I think that the union and particularly ordinary locally elected reps have played an extraordinary role in ensuring that our workplaces have been kept safe. I know in our area, I work in the business, energy and industrial strategy area. We've placed demands on our employer and we've published those amongst the memberships. But we've had local reps going in to do health and safety inspections to make sure that, you know, the workplaces are as safe as they possibly can be in these times. Our local branch has done a magnificent job in keeping the security guards, the caterers, all those people that are taken for granted in many ways safe and keeping the numbers down because, of course, they've got no choice. We have an element of choice in the department, but of course these outsourced workers have got no choice as to whether or not they go in. So they have to go in whether they like it or not. But 
you know, working with us at group level. They've done an absolutely fantastic job locally. So I think that a lot of the responsibility has been left to the local reps and they've really stepped up to the plate. But that's where I think there is an absence of leadership because I think at national level, they ought to be coordinating this, which isn't just putting demands on the cabinet office, which they have done. It's then leveraging, you know, or working out a plan that uses, if necessary, our industrial power to leverage those demands if and when, you know, the government say no. And in a lot of the areas, they have said no, you know, in terms of closing offices, making sure that people are on full paid sick leave, for example, that people, you know, are on full pay if they've got childcare responsibilities, if and when the schools are closed or they choose not to send their children to school. You know, we're a lot luckier, apart from our outsourced workers in a lot of the areas, because we're not threatened with redundancy, we're not furloughed, etc. in the vast majority of our membership areas. But there are other challenges that have to be addressed, including people who have to go in the workplace because they're critical workers, including people who have got childcare responsibilities, the black community and you know, the disproportionate impact of the actual health condition COVID is having on those areas. And that, for me, is where the union's been found wanting, is, yes, place the demands on the national employer, but you have to use and build the industrial strength of your membership to get the agreements in place to truly keep our members safe. And I think that our local reps have taken on a hell of a responsibility and done a fantastic job. But again, I think that if the union nationally had coordinated properly, then the burden would have been more evenly shared in that sense. And we'd probably be in a better place now. Definitely. And obviously a big way that all of this is impacting is, like you mentioned, on the safety, on the infection rates and so on. But also there's the mental health side of things, isn't there, which I'm presuming the health and safety reps are having to deal with as well. Is there demands that you think should be developed on that area? In terms of mental health and well-being, I personally think it's a very tricky issue to deal with because you've got a number of conflicting factors here. You know, where we've managed to sort of have the default position that people will stay at home, largely, again, as I say, that's something that's been delivered by local reps. Then clearly you've got people at home who are trying to do their work. Some are isolated. Some are in conditions where, you know, they're sharing rooms or whatever, because, you know, civil service workers and national government workers are no different from any other part of the population in that there are enormous problems in terms of affordable housing affordable travel, affordable childcare. We're not, you know, immune from all of that just because we happen to work for national government. And it's really exposed the nature of the conditions under which the members are living. And so, you know, there has definitely been an increase and sort of almost like a tailing up, if you like, of mental health and well-being problems. And, you know, you can go right through from sort of increased stress levels to quite severe suicidal questions that we've had to deal with, domestic violence, which is not mental health and well-being, but it's exposed the nature of that as well. And yeah, I think that the National Union should be integrating these sorts of issues into their demands, which they have done. But it's more than that, isn't it? You don't just place demands on the employer. You have to fight for those demands if the employer says no. And for me, it's that campaign alongside that's missing. And I think there's a balance to be had because, you know, there's a balance, isn't there, between ensuring 
that people can get out of their homes if they need to be, but also that does not equal necessarily coming into the workplace. So it's how you sort of work through and get the best possible arrangements in place for individuals who are suffering those particular problems. And the reason I say that is because it's clear from the ONS stats that the virus is prevalent in the workplaces, whether the workplace is a school, a bus or an office. And so we've, in the Broad Left Network, we've worked very hard and we've placed demands on the National Union to make that the default position. But of course, without that campaign alongside those demands, you can't realise all of them. And I think that's going to be a real challenge as the government tries to introduce its roadmap across society. Agreed. And especially when it's going to be combined with greater economic instability, which obviously the Tories intend to make us pay for. So do you think workers' pay is going to be an issue in the coming period? I think at the moment, I've got no doubt in my mind, it already is an issue. It's how we fight it. I mean, certainly in our areas, it would be fair to say that the vast majority of the workforce are still very concerned about covid And a lot of our workers feel very relieved that they haven't been subjected to the same conditions as workers in other industries. And of course, that's a result of, you know, trade union strength in the workplace over, you know, a lengthy period of time. But that doesn't mean that we've also got a lot of our members who have suffered because of their partners or their children or their parents have been penalised in the way that perhaps non-government workers have been more generally in terms of redundancies, in terms of furlough, in terms of benefits, because a lot of our members claim benefits because we're so poorly paid in the first place. I think pay will be an issue, and it is an issue already, but I think there's going to be a lot more than that. I mean, the government, in terms of us, have wasted no time in trying to save money during this period. For example, many of our members have been working at home, as you know, during this period. And now they are trying to reduce office space already for people. So it's going to make it more difficult that when people are able to come into the workplace, for those who wish to be based in a workplace to be so. They're also talking about moving 25,000 jobs out of London, which is a hell of a lot as part of their levelling up agenda. We've got the continued attacks on pensions and the continued worries about office closures, which has a huge impact not just on members of PCS and their jobs, but in local communities and the local economy as well. So these are the things that I was talking about earlier that the government's carrying on doing as though nothing really was going on in terms of COVID. And I think as well, that's, you know, one of the reasons or another reason we need a change in leadership because we need a leadership who's prepared to stand up to those particular challenges and to work with members to set out what it is going to take if we are going to defeat these particular proposals. Definitely. And I guess that the government is anticipating that there is going to be anger and a mood to fight and so on, which is linked to the introduction of the new policing bill, further criminalising protest. Moving on from sort of the day to day issues of pay and safety and so on that we've covered, what do you think the unions should be doing about that, really? Should the unions play a role in defending the right to protest, to strike, to picket and so on? Absolutely. For me, it's one of those basic ABCs, isn't it? Workers can't fight with several hands tied behind our backs. 
you know, we've already had it with the anti-trade union laws. Look, I suppose simply the powers that be want to do one thing. We want something else. And for me, it's how do we get that if they won't just give it to us? And our whole experience is they're not going to just give it to us. We have to fight for it. I mean, even something as simple as, you know, placing demands on the employer is part of that fight. Because without a trade union, no demands would be placed in the first place. And for me, it's not the fact that people want to protest or want to strike or want to campaign or want to raise loads of PQs in Parliament or whatever the current thing is. It's about us having the ability to do whatever it takes to get what we need in order for workers, including PCS members, to get their fair share in society. And I would take that broader than paying conditions personally. I think that's about education, health, housing, all those sorts of questions that we all you know, rely on in order to have a decent standard of living, etc. And for me, the government, and it shocks me, actually, how much the trade union movement and political parties have just sat by and watched it happen, almost. Well, they have actually sat by and watched it happen. All during the COVID pandemic, government has passed policies that are designed to keep the working class in its place or how they perceive our place should be. And I think the right to protest for me is the... I'm going to say the icing on the cake, but of course the icing on the cake is supposed to be a nice thing, not a horrible thing. But I think if anything really exposes what the Tories have been up to, it's this. And what they try and do, of course, is divide people by saying, ooh, do you really want people protesting on the streets? Well, nobody does. But we need to be able to have that right if we can't get what we want and what we deserve. That doesn't mean violence or anything of that nature. That means that people come together in a collective manner to be able to withdraw their labour if they choose, and or protest, and or campaign. And this is about, in my opinion, keeping workers, and particularly trade union members, in their place. Because the government knows that they are going to be introducing some fairly nasty stuff over the next period, and they don't want to fight on it. They just want to be able to do it to protect their interests. Trade union movement, in my opinion, is there to protect our interests. And it is shocking that the trade union movement has done very little to fight any of this and to collectivise workers with communities, with, you know, local people and so on, to explain why these rights, you know, these freedoms are so important and then to come together to campaign to make sure they don't happen. So, yes, I think the trade union movement has got a massive role to play in all of this. Again, this is part of our ABC, isn't it? Bargain, campaign organise and all of that includes the right to campaign and protest on the streets. It's the right to withdraw our labour if necessary and it's the right to do what it takes in order to protect and improve members' working conditions. The Tories are chipping away at it and the trade union movement, the leaders in the trade union movement are sitting back and watching that happen and that cannot continue. Okay. Over the last year, we've seen movements like the Black Lives Matter, protests following the murder of Sarah Everard and the policing of the vigil there. We've had the issue of LGBT rights and trans rights as major issues. Do you think that trade unions have got a role to play on fighting for equality, fighting for an end to oppression that people face under capitalism? 
My own sense is that the trade union movement are central to the fight on inequality. I think, if anything, shown up the inequalities there are in our working lives, let alone our home and personal and domestic lives. It's been COVID, where we've seen, not just for PCS members, but much broader than that, a massive disproportionate impact on black workers, for example, who are more likely to get COVID and have after effects of COVID impact on women who are more likely to lose their jobs because of their caring responsibilities. And you can repeat that right the way across the different sections, for want of a better word, of our population. For me, though, the key is in that workplace power. And for me, that is central to the fight for equality. And equality is central to the fight to achieve better working conditions for everybody. But what I don't mean by that is that black workers' issues are left to black workers, that women workers' issues are left to women workers. What is important is that the whole of the class unite around an agenda that puts front and centre the issues on equality For example, for black members to be treated equally in the workplace in terms of promotions, in terms of pay. For example, women workers being treated as equals despite their caring responsibilities. For LGBT workers to be treated with a respect that other workers expect. For workers with disabilities not to be discriminated against because they happen to have a disability. Disability does not mean incompetence or incapable. In fact, it's quite the opposite. But in order to fight all of that, then we need to build that workplace power and that workplace response, which includes all of those issues, but needs to be fought for by the whole of the membership, not just sections of the membership. So my view is in order to achieve the sorts of things that we want for all our equality groups, that the whole of the working population needs to unite around a set of demands, which will then benefit all workers, but obviously those in those categories for, again, what for want of a better word, with those equality characteristics more than others. That's the main point, isn't it? That we've got to make clear that the unions can lead and bring everyone together. So my last question for you today, Marion, is on politics, actually, which some people might see as separate to trade unionism, but I don't think we do. We've got the local elections coming up, and we would say that the COVID pandemic really underlines even more the necessity of workers having political demands and a political arm to their workplace struggle. And now, especially with Keir Starmer at the helm of the Labour Party, there's this ruthless wiping out of Corbynism from the party completely. What do you think the unions should do about that? And PCS, what's PCS's political strategy? My view is that politics is integrated into everything we do. You know, what we think is political, how we feel is political, what we work on is political. And we've talked a lot throughout this whole interview about the bargaining agenda, about campaigning, about organising, about the use of the strike weapon, if appropriate, protesting on the streets, if appropriate, etc, etc. For me, the question of politics is exactly the same. It is something that we should be using and exploiting in order to benefit ordinary working people. 
And that's why I do believe fundamentally that it is important that every union has a plan as to how they would use politics. What that doesn't mean to me is an affiliation to a particular party, where in some ways that means that trade unions are beholden to the rules of that party. What that means for me is that we have a strategy that puts pressure on MPs to carry out the policies and the programme that is determined by the membership of any given union. And I would include PCS in that. PCS is not affiliated to any party. And we won a policy a few years ago, which talked about supporting those MPs who supported us. So, for example, in my own dispute where we won the protection of jobs in Sheffield in what was then the business department, we worked with MPs to put pressure on Parliament to change the attitude of politicians who could be argued were behind some of the decisions that put our members' jobs at risk. And you can take that right the way through the union in terms of opposing the pay freeze, in terms of opposing the removal of jobs out of London the closure of offices, that we should be using politicians to pressure discussions in Parliament, to lobby other politicians who are in positions of power to change their minds on things as part of the armoury, if you like, to leverage concessions to the benefit of all our members. Personally, I supported the idea of a Corbyn government. And the reason I supported the idea of a Corbyn government was because my view is that the manifesto on which Corbyn stood benefited our members in terms of that investment into the public sector, the renationalisation and taking back in-house our privatised areas, which would be of massive benefit to all of our members in those areas who are treated abysmally at this point in time. Talked about keeping offices open in the local communities, talked about giving us decent pay rises and not imposing a pay freeze and so on and so forth. That's why I supported a Corbyn government. For me, it's not about the person, it's about the programme on which he stood. And I supported that programme because I think that would have benefited thousands and thousands of PCS members up and down the country. What I didn't agree with was a blanket support. And the union is now about to embark on a further discussion in the light of the very unfortunate defeat of Corbyn in the general election as to what our strategy should be. And personally, I will be arguing that, yes, we should have a political strategy and that political strategy should involve working with and pressurising MPs to raise and support the policies and programme as determined by PCS members. I am often asked, what is the point of Keir Starmer? And I must say, I don't know. I've not seen anything since he was either elected leader or since he's been in Parliament opposite the Tories that, frankly, would differentiate much between what the Tories are arguing for and what I believe a Socialist Labour Party should be arguing for. I don't hold out a lot of hope that we can transform Labour into the organisation that I joined I'm no longer a member of that organisation, but when I was 14 years old, it bears no resemblance at all to what the Labour Party was like then. And even then, it wasn't good enough. So again, I think we've got some massive challenges that we need to address. But I do think that it is important that our union and every union has a political strategy. It is the core in what we're about and what we do. 
but it should be used to the benefit of the membership and the workers we represent rather than the other way around. And there's civil servants, isn't there, who are actually standing in the local elections this year as part of the anti-cut stand of the trade unionist and socialist coalition. Absolutely. We've got civil servants running up in my own area in Sheffield and I know in a whole number of other areas as well that we've got ordinary PCS members more widely. The policy of our union is no to all cuts and it is absolutely in line with that policy that we have PCS members who are standing in the local elections for the Trade Union and Socialist Coalition, which also has a no to all cuts policy. So those two things absolutely align. And, you know, I welcome the fact that we've got some of our members standing in those elections, because again, whilst if they were elected, that that would benefit the community as a whole. The fact of the matter is that the more important thing is that they'll be out campaigning on the doorsteps, being able to put forward a programme that is central to that that PCS supports, but also will be of a benefit as well to civil service workers and PCS members more generally. So I think that the fact that we've got members standing in these elections on a no to all cuts programme is a significant step forward. Brilliant. Sorry, we can just hear Marion coughing there as she comes to the end of the question. So I thank Marion very much, but especially for doing this when you're not in 100% of health. So we really appreciate your time today. Thank you, Marion. Thank you. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party, the England and Wales section of the Committee for a Workers International. Today we heard from Marion Lloyd and I'm Sarah Sachs-Eldridge. This episode was edited by Nick Hart. You can find further reading in the notes in your podcast app and at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash podcast. If you want to get in touch, email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. Socialism the podcast relies on funding from our members and supporters. We have no big business backers or adverts, which allows us to maintain our political independence. Can you help fund this podcast? You can make a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. But even more importantly, did you agree with the ideas of the Socialist Party that you heard here today? Now is the time to get in touch and find out about becoming a member. Apply to join at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash join and we will arrange a discussion with you to work out if we've got political agreement. That's the main criteria for becoming a member. If you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism in your country, contact the Committee for a Workers International by visiting socialistworld.net. Until next time, solidarity.